Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hit Like a Girl podcast is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. One thing I love about working with them is that they're mission-driven, which means that they're dedicated to featuring authoritative shows, hosts, and guests who take on the tough topics in healthcare with empathy, expertise, and a commitment to excellence. If you're looking for bingeable content related to the healthcare industry, they've got more than 8,000 episodes on demand waiting for you. From professional development, the patient voice, digital health, innovation and entrepreneurship, and of course, health IT, they've got you covered. So this is your official invitation to check them out at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and today I'm talking with the one and only Stacey Hurt. She's a patient engagement consultant, healthcare advocate, survivorship activist, digital health strategist, and keynote speaker. She's an award winning pharma executive who lives as a healthcare consumer every day as a caregiver for her intellectually and developmentally disabled son, and as a stage four colorectal cancer survivor herself. In this episode, she shares her story and best advice, and I can't wait for you to hear it. So let's get started. Stacey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I know we have crossed paths in so many different areas. I don't think we've ever had a chance to meet in person, but we've definitely, are in our Venn diagram of places that we hang out, we have a lot of overlap, but I've never really had the opportunity to just like one-on-one get to know you and your story, even though I've heard quite a bit about it. But would you mind taking a moment to introduce yourself and your, like, where you live in the healthcare ecosystem? Like, where do you play and spend Mm. your time? Great questions. Well, first of all, yes, it is awesome to be with you. And I think we've talked in Clubhouse. I was supposed to meet you at HIMSS 21. And then unfortunately, my oncologist put the kibosh on that. I wasn't allowed to come. So this is just awesome to be with you today. And, and thank you for having me, Joy. It's a true pleasure. So sort of my story is that first I worked in healthcare. I got my education in healthcare. I have a, an MBA. I have a master's in health administration. And then I started a career in healthcare 
actually with a health IT company in uh, as a customer service rep, as I think everyone should start their career being either you know a server as like a waiter or a waitress, if you would, and then as a customer service rep, because I think you learn so much about life. And then I was with a physician practice management company, and then I went into pharma. And as I was, I loved being in pharma. I, I was a sales rep. I loved building relationships with all kinds of people. When I worked at the physician practice management company, I worked side by side with doctors. So I really got an insight into how doctors think, what's important to them, how they're compensated, you know, revenue cycles, coding. And I did a fair amount of health IT when I was at, at the PPM as well. But when I was in pharma, my first big healthcare event happened to me, and that was the birth of our younger son, Emmett, and uh, in 2005. And he missed all the six-month milestones, and we knew something was wrong. The first step was discovering, you know, it was trying to figure out why. And the first thing we did was he went for an MRI of his brain, and it came back completely blank. So we knew something was wrong. And then we went on this journey... Wait. What do you mean it came back blank? How does it come back blank? You hear this term that your brain is gray matter. Uh-huh. So his came back completely white. Okay. There was no gray matter in his brain, which meant there was no, what we came to find out was no brain myelination. So you hear this term myelination, like in wiring, right? That there's like sheets on wires that make the connections. There were no connections in his brain. Wow. It was terrifying. When his MRI came back completely abnormal, then it was like, what is it? And he he has a large head. So it was meeting, we met with 60 different specialists to try to, we stopped counting at 60. And was it hydrocephalus? What, you know, what was it? And of course, when I was pregnant, I was tested for all the normal, I was 35 at the time. So I was tested for Down syndrome and he passed all the normal blood work because as we, came to find out he had a very, very rare chromosomal disorder, one of three in the world, no three. cases. Is that still the truth? The truth? Well, that's a good question. He's due, we have to resequence him, you know, to resequence his genes. But I'm in a number of support groups. There's unique, there's chromosome disorder outreach. And I still have not found a 1Q duplication at where his exists. So it's very rare. Bottom line is extraordinarily rare. I mean, one is the biggest chromosome in the body. So he's globally affected. You know, you've heard me say he doesn't walk, talk, do anything for himself. He's basically a 16-year-old baby. It threw my world into a tailspin. You know, I had to take six months off of work. I was depressed. I didn't know what to do. I mean, and here were my husband has his MBA. We met in grad school. He worked in healthcare. I worked in healthcare. And there was no playbook for this. Yeah. We had no idea. Of what was happening. You know, it was just sort of figuring it out and lining up, you know, he was a baby. So it's it's going through the diagnosis, then it's getting early intervention and you have all these therapists coming into your home one after another. I really spent a lot, a lot of time crying, a lot of time crying. The thing that comes up for me is that must have been profoundly isolating. It was. You know, Joy, what I remember most was, you know, and I've told this story a thousand times and I still get really choked up because it's my son and I love him so much, as you know. But I remember sitting at my desk in front of, I live in sort of like one of those idyllic neighborhoods, you know, on a cul-de-sac with the all the, you know, Ryan homes. And 
the other parents had their kids out on the street, like on their bikes. And they're just like standing, having a beer and talking to each other while their kid is just off like biking or running around. And I thought, that'll never be me. That'll never be me to just have that carefree. Oh, I don't know where my kid is type of thing. And and I still hear it. And as you see, it's really close to the surface. It still hurts. So that happened. And obviously it changed my perspective to the point where I had to take an early retirement from my career in 2008 to get everything squared away. My younger, my older son was two and it just, I had a dip. So I dipped. And then once I kind of got things back on track, I went back to work and I was head of training and development for a smaller pharmaceutical company. And that was 2011. And I loved it. They were super flexible with what I had going on at home. I was traveling like once a month. It was great doing a lot of like webinars and stuff for training. And um, then in 2014, I was traveling and, and I started having really bad fatigue. I had abdominal pain. I had some blood in my stool. And I just kept saying to my husband, I'm like, I feel like crap. I feel like crap. But I thought, you know, our young, our Emmett is up once a night at least. So I just thought it was like wear and tear and take care of him. And I just sort of ignored it. And a lot of my friends had internal hemorrhoids. And I'm like, it's a nuisance, whatever. I'll get it taken care of whenever. And then the pain just kept, it was intense. It was like doubled over pain. And I was an athlete my whole life. I have a pretty high pain tolerance. I'm pretty tough. And so I was like, I, I got to, you know, go check, get this checked out. And my doctor was like, well, I think it's internal hemorrhoids. I don't think it's anything, but I'm going to send you for a colonoscopy just to be sure. And then the rest is history. I mean, he went in for the scope. The tumor was so big in my rectum, he couldn't get the scope around it. He aborted the procedure. He woke me up, said, you probably have, you have cancer. Oh my God. And I just was in disbelief. I'm like, I was out running two days ago. I work out every day. I eat healthy. I take good care of myself. I don't smoke. Like, how could this happen? And he was like, I mean, I had like all the nurses were crying. Everybody was around me. Like it was stunning. It's still stunning. Is it, is it just what genetics? Is it like, is there a reason? It's classified as early age onset colorectal cancer because I would not have been screened. You know, I was 40. It was my 44th birthday when I got my PET scan back that I was diagnosed. Yeah, we're chalking it up to genetics. We think our best theory is that I have some sort of mutant DNA because both of my parents have autoimmune disorders and then there's me. And then we know what's going on with Emmett that, you know, so I have definitely funky genes. I have some sort of mutant DNA. Too bad. It it gives you superpowers, but in a different way now. I'll claim that. Yeah. Yeah. Here I am. Genetic superpowers (laughs) activate. But like I said, the rest of the story is history. 55 chemos, two surgeries, radiation, all of it. You know, and I'm now six years cancer free, which, you know, everybody, when I give the speech, everybody cheers, which is cool, which is very cool. But how we got through those days, me being on chemo and handling our son, I will never know. I will never know how we did that. I mean, my parents basically moved in with us. My husband's a hero, but I don't know. I'm just really glad to be here. And I treasure every single day my feet hit the floor. I mean, I am so grateful to be here. And I think, you know, that's really why I'm so fueled on my mission. So where are we now? So so I worked in healthcare. All this happened with my son. All this happened to me with colorectal cancer. And I was in the support groups online. And everybody's like, how do you file an appeal? How do you fight for a PET scan? How do you do? And I was like, oh, well, this is what you say. This is what you do. This is how you talk to a doctor. 
And they were like, wow, Stacy's like some sort of an expert. And I was like, well, I worked in healthcare, so I know how to, how to say all this stuff. And so it just kind of my advocacy career really started there, you know, mm-hmm. with online support groups and advocating for colorectal cancer. And then, of course, I beating an 8% chance of survival. Of course, my story was was amazing too. So I, I sort of became this sort of mini, like I said, expert slash hero. And then I grew and I'm like, you know, there's something here. There's a mission to be held here for patients, like how to navigate the system, what to say, how to talk to doctors. There's a real thing here. So, you know, I worked as long as I could at, at my small pharma job, but then, you know, I came out of that started getting well. And Hims put out this call for be an influencer. So this is the end of 2019. This is the end of 2019. And I had known Hims, of course, from working in healthcare. I knew all about Hims. And I said to my husband, I said, they need somebody like me. They need to hear from somebody who worked in the system and has been a caregiver and a patient. I said, they need somebody like the voice of the people. They need me. And he was like, apply. So I applied and I said, well, there's no way they're they're going to care to let me in, but I'm going to apply. And I remember when I got the email, it was like around Christmas, I think, of 2019. And I said, you know, holy, you know, we won't edit that, but I said, holy crap, I got it. And he's like, good for you, honey. That's amazing. And so then I started connecting with these people with 20,000 followers like Jamie and Rasu and Gita and Ligia. And they started like opening their arms to me and, and really believed in me. And I said, okay, I'm going to go to Hims 2020 and I'm going to launch this whole consulting business of the patient voice and my expertise being on both sides. And again, Joy, the rest <laughs> is history. And we know what happened, but it's continued it's continued online, which has been great for me being here and being, we lost our nursing through COVID. Of course, we know what's going on with nurses being deployed to the front lines. So I was the primary caregiver. So I couldn't really do anything full-time except take care of my son. And nobody was really doing anything, but it was great. I was kept speaking virtually and, and it's, so it has evolved and I have gotten clients and here I am. So that's the whole, whole story. Well, so it's out. Yeah, but so... Are you like Stacy Hurt in consulting company? Like, is that like if somebody, are you an independent? Are you have your, okay. Yes. I have my independent business. I only kind of really work it part-time because of being primary caregiver for my son. My consulting business, I'm compensated to speak. I, part of my business is just doing inspirational speaking and, you know, for companies, for sales conferences, I'm speaking. I'm glad to speak to Paracel in January at their global summit. I do a lot of work with Medocity. I, I spoke for Red Hat. I've spoken for some pharma clients and, and just, you know, being sort of like an inspirational keynote speaker. And I love that, like telling the whole story. But then, my secret sauce with that is that I walked in their shoes, you know, like I did what they did. Like if they bring in somebody like, you know, Troy Aikman, I mean, I love Troy Aikman, but he doesn't know what it's like working in our business. Right. right. And so I, I get, you know, to do a fair amount of that. And then I have a couple of clients that are like, you know, well, we want you to look at our strategy. Is it patient inclusive? Is it patient centric? Does this wording make sense? And I have to straighten a few of them out. Like, I'm like, no, this isn't going to fly. You know, this isn't good. Look, patients aren't going to feel good about this. You know, the the fortunate part, like to your question about, I, I, and my friend Gil Bash says it the best. I have really kind of touched 
every single part of the healthcare ecosystem. So when I get in conversations with IT or marketing or sales or operations or even finance, I can at least understand what they're talking about and relate to them and, and help them develop a strategy. Well, that's the part that I was curious about because it's great to be inspirational and it's great to like leave people with a feel-good story, but like I want to know what action that also inspires. And I wanted what I would like to hear is that after people hear you talk, they're coming up to you and saying, I need your expertise to help guide me so that we can be better advocates for the people and the patients that we serve. That is happening. I can tell you a hundred percent that is happening. And I can tell you that somebody was walking around with a Stacy Hertz sign at Hymns 21 because I got flooded with requests and I wasn't even there. I wasn't even there. there, So I could only imagine if if I was there. But yes, fortunately, people will hear about me, hear me on a panel and they will follow up and say, Stacey, we'd really like to work with you. And then I do have an hourly fee that I charge. And it just really depends on what they're looking for. But a lot of it is... I. Can't really talk too much about my clients, but you know, a lot of it is content, strategy, feel, front-facing, collateral, website redesign, social media. That's really my strength. I mean, I'll tell you, I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not good at. I'm not from a background of research. I'm not a numbers cruncher. I all of my advocate friends who are in research, I give them tons of credit. I say that I come in on the translational research end of that. And, you know, I take what those studies say and I make it work for whatever business they're in. I want to ask about like to the fire that you have that drives you. Like what question do you ask yourself, you know, each day when you wake up? But for me, for a while, it's been like, what's the most impactful thing that I can do? And then that helps me decide how I'm going to spend my day. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything like that for you? What drives me is... You know, and I'm very, as you see, I'm very respectfully outspoken on social media, especially, you know, segue is these patient conferences, patient experience conferences about patients that don't include patient voices. That's really what gets me. You want to know what gets me? That's what gets me. Okay. They're all talking about patients. I openly identify as a patient. Seven years later, I still have my port in. I still go for blood work every six weeks. I am still under active surveillance by my oncologist. I am very much a patient. So I identify as a patient. So you can't be talking about patients and not including the actual patient voices, the actual patients that it affects. You know, like I said, having worked in healthcare and talking about patients and now being on this side of it as a caregiver, as a patient... What really drives me is bringing the two together. I definitely see a gap. And that's where I saw my services being needed and that that was a business model that could make money, but make things better. I want to make a positive difference in the world, but I I want to be paid for it too. I mean, I, you know, I'm a business person. But what really drives me is that patients are not, they're being marginalized. And then of the patient group, that the patients that are marginalized, it is the people that don't have access to the healthcare they deserve. You know, Joy, I always talk about the fact that I am white, I am privileged, I am fortunate, I am blessed. 
to know what to ask, to know what questions to ask, to be able to get in a car, to drive to an appointment. What do the people do who need public transportation, who are working two jobs just to get yeah. by, who can't afford their medicines, who can't afford internet to check their test results on the patient portal? What do all those people do? That's another part of my mission is everybody should have access to the same health care that I do, that this white privileged suburban mom has, you know, yeah. everybody and so in turn have access to the best outcomes that they deserve. So I don't know. I, I'm just on a mission for, I'm just the people's champion. I'm on a mission. I love it. Well, so what's the best way to hold a mirror up to these people? Like the, the like if we're talking about the conferences, you know, that are about and for patients, but not including them, is it to shame them on social media? It is to put a letter writing, letter writing campaign together or offer your services? Like, I guess my question is, do you feel like it's intentional? Like, do you think it's part of the model to be that way? Or they're just literally ignorant that they're doing this thing? You know, I think they're just oblivious. I think it's just the way that things have always been done. And I think that it's just a matter of re-education and realignment. What happened with COVID, well, in the year 2020, it was a couple things. I mean, you had COVID, but we really saw the social justice movement come into light, you know. Unfortunately, the murder of, of George Floyd really showed, you know, that we have some serious miles to go, okay, okay. in the country, you know. There's serious inequity and inequality. I think as part of that, there was really an amplification of marginalized voices. And as I said, patients were a marginalized group, right? They were sort of, I use the analogy that I think that the healthcare system views patients like cars, right? These cars, like when they break down, they go into the, to the shop to be fixed, right? And the mechanics work on the cars to get them back on the road and that's it. You know, it's not like the mechanics are talking to the cars. It's not like the cars have anything to say. It's just part of the job. And I think that's how the healthcare system, I don't want to single out, you know, physicians or clinicians or anybody, but I think that the healthcare system just looks at patients as cars, like they're broken. We're going to fix them. We're going to get them back out there. But now the patients are speaking up and saying, hey, this is what I need. I don't know about this. Can you explain this to me? I don't understand this. And that's really rocking the system. That has never happened before to the extent it's happening now. And to your point, I think it's just it's just re-educating. I don't ever want to shame anybody. I want to educate them. I want to enlighten them. I want to respectfully include patients, you know, but in a very bold way. I do want to call them out and point out to them how it can be done better. I love sure. that. That's like a, a method after my own heart, which is like, it's not about necessarily shaming anybody, but let me show you. There is a better way to do this that is more inclusive and that like takes into account a, a more full picture. Maybe not a complete picture, but at least a more full one. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, if like I had my, what I'd really like to do, I don't want to say like my dream job or whatever, but, you know, I know that I'm sort of an N of one over here, somebody that worked in healthcare and has been on the receiving side of it. I'd love to train new Stacys. You know, I'd love to train a whole new tribe of many Stacys that can do what I do, that can be on a panel and speak respectfully, intelligently and everything about the experience that they've had to help industry, to help health systems, to help doctors do whatever they do better. That's my dream. You know, I'm really grateful. I guess it would put myself out of a job, but that's fine because, 
not know, really. I'm, there's plenty of work to be done. It's not like there's. <laughs> yes. There is definitely plenty of work to be done yeah. as see every day out there. Yes. And, you know, it's funny because I worked in healthcare and, and repeatedly, you know, I'm so grateful for these opportunities that, you know, that I get to include my voice with. But I just had scratch my head like, nobody else is doing this. Like nobody else is thinking to say this, like nobody else is getting this. And repeatedly to your point, Joy, there's a lot of work to do. There are a lot of gaps. Mm -hmm. We are still miles and miles away from a level playing field. If you had advice for somebody who wanted to go into patient advocacy or make a difference even for their own patient journey, you've learned a lot. Like what would you share? Do not be afraid to ask questions. That's number one. I think white coat syndrome is alive and well. I think that patients are still so intimidated by their doctors. The best advice is if you don't understand your plan, ask a question, number one, and have an open communication with your doctor and say, well, what does that mean? Well, how can, you know, who's going to help me do that? That comes into like patient navigation. I mean, again, I'm really lucky with resources, but these patients can't do it on their own. I mean, they need more social supports in place, more economic infrastructure and supports, and we need more policy changes. That's yes. just a whole different thing. But but I would say on a very basic granular level as a patient, if you don't understand what's happening in your appointment, don't be afraid to ask a question. Don't be afraid to ask for clarification. Don't be afraid to get a second opinion if it doesn't feel good. Do you trust your gut intuition if it doesn't feel good? If you don't feel like you can carry out what the doctor's asking you to do, if the doctor says, you know, lose 25 pounds, if you're in a food desert or you don't have access to food or whatever, don't be afraid to speak up and say, doctor, I can't do that. And here's why. Help me. You know, those types of conversations would make all the difference. I just still don't think that they're happening because I think patients are so afraid. And I don't want them to be afraid. Well, I imagine that they can also connect with other, like you had mentioned, different support groups. Like, is that where patients can also get support of like leaning on their peers of people going through something similar and Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if you have access to the internet and you can go online and just do a keyword search of whatever condition, chronic illness, you know, whether it's cancer, diabetes, hypertension, whatever it is, mental health, whatever it is, find your people. Yeah. Absolutely. Find a support group online. If you don't have access to the internet, go to your local hospital, look on a a bulletin board, try to get an in-person support group and try to find some people who look and feel and act like you do. And and they can empower you also. Yeah. um, Support groups are are just such a vital part of our of our healthcare culture and ecosystem and healing, you know, and building community. Look, I got a whole new community being a HIMSS influencer, starting with you, <laughs> you, you know? I got a whole big, I got all new members of Team Stacy. I mean, I got the long arms all around them, giving them a big virtual hug and everything. And, and look what you've done for me, how much you've empowered me and inspired me to keep talking and keep fighting and, And those times that, you know, I'll get like occasional hater that says, you know, we're not going to do it that way. And I'm like, oh, you know, but then you guys are like, get back out there, Stacey. You know, you're making a difference. You are making a difference. And I think that when people see you and what you're doing, it gives them permission to maybe be a little bit more bolder as well. I mean, absolutely. It's not the Stacey Hurt show. Believe me. I mean, I put myself out there 
like you said, Joy, so that others know they can too. People say, oh, Stacey, you're so relatable or whatever. Oh my gosh, that's like the biggest compliment that I could ever get. That because you shared your story or because you were out there fighting for X, Y, and Z, we did too. And you inspired me to ask my doctor to get a colonoscopy, to do this, to question this. That is the best and biggest compliment that you know what I've gone through in my life and what I've suffered and endured, if that can empower or inspire or you know lift up somebody else, that's why I'm here, despite yeah. an 80% chance. That's why I'm here, 100%. 100%. 100%. I mean, I think also there's a, a lot of what I have, the talk I give myself a lot of the times is like, if somebody can't see it, then it's hard for them to be it. Or that it's like, so oh, yeah. if nobody else is going to, show it's I guess it's another way of saying like show versus tell and having the courage to like just show up and and be an example or be a leader in a space and it's really hard to even think of yourself like I don't I mean I spend a lot of time alone and with my dog so it's really hard for me to feel like a leader most days yeah oh yeah you can ask I have a regular talk with Jamie Edwards about imposter syndrome you know I'm like Jamie you know a lot of people are you know saying I'm this and that I don't you know I think I'm way over the handlebars here I don't know about (laughs) I'm like is it me but then there's the days that you know one person like you said says because of you I did x and that's where you realize you're making a difference and you are leading and you're making positive change and and you keep going and you keep driving. And even when, I mean, I've sat in meetings and, and I get the same question all the time. Like, Stacy, well, tell us about your business. What are you? And I told this one client, I said, you know what? I don't really know. I'm just making it up as I go along. And, and it was like the CEO. And I was like, they're never going to hire me. And he said, we, call, we do that too here, but we call it innovation. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, make it till you make it, but yeah. we call it innovation. So. I'm in every day I'm waking up and is deciding to do something that matters. And do I know what's going to happen the next day? No, but I'm going to keep doing it. That's it. And especially now in, in a global pandemic that is still so very real, you know, that's all any of us can do. You know, we're all doing the best that we can. And I just think I've said incorrect things. I've done incorrect things, but I've always led with love. Every time I lead with love and I lead with an open heart and an open mind, you know, look, I don't know what this is, especially with my friends who are, you know, gay or trans or people of color or differently abled or whatever. I'm routinely messing up if you would. Okay. But I say, I'm like, I want to learn more. Will you help me? Will you help educate me as to how you're feeling with this? And like, what are your biggest challenges so I can understand and I can fight for you? And that's the way that conversation goes. Back to your point, I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. I don't view vulnerability as a weakness. I view vulnerability as a strength because that leads to the courage to change. Absolutely. I think that where you're coming from is something also I really identify with, which is like recognizing your privilege. I 100% recognize that like I have, I live in this like kind of both sides of the fence. My last name is Rios. I'm Hispanic. I'm white presenting, but I identify as Hispanic, even though people look at me like you're a white girl, right? And like, I know that based on how I look and how I present, 
I have been given either opportunities, the benefit of the doubt. I've been given people don't expect anything bad from me ever, which is a huge privilege. Not to say that I'm out there like causing all kinds of damage. I'm not. However, I mean, I had my moments, you know, in my lifetime, but nobody would ever expect that from me. And I recognize that like there are people who have lost their lives or gone to prison or been expelled or had like some major, major consequences based on something a lot smaller, having done something similar, you know, like walking down the street with your hoodie up, right? Right. None of us should be making any assumptions about anybody right now. You know, like that's like number one. I mean, you gave a great example of how an assumption worked to your advantage, you know, luckily. But but then we have assumptions, you know, I'm just going to say it maybe about like people of color or something like that, you know, that are unfair, completely unfair, unfounded, unreasonable. Yeah. And why would you feel that way? That implicit bias like that, it's disgusting. I mean, why would you do that? You you don't even know that person. You know, I, I just think again, with what we've all been through these past two years, where there's been so much loss of life, there's tremendous burnout by our our clinicians community. Can we just give everybody a chance? Can we can we just can we just get you know give everybody a pass and you know let's get a reset and let's again lead with love and an open mind and an open heart and get to know one another on a personal level. You know mm-hmm. something I always talk about real quick is um, when I'm on panels, you know, I, I love to talk about obviously technology making our lives better. But something I'm really passionate about is technology should not replace a relationship, especially with a clinician. You know, my oncologist, he was invested in me. My nurse, she was invested in me. They're two of the main reasons I'm still alive, other than my family, my husband, my kids. But technology should not replace a relationship. As we see this sort of portable healthcare system come into play with consumerization, and I admire that and everything, but if you're just going to like have like a doc a day, I am not down with that at all. You know, I am all about the connectivity that we see across the wires should be the connectivity that we have on a personal basis. Yeah. It should not enhance it, it shouldn't replace it. Yeah, I totally definitely agree it. with that. I definitely agree with that. I think yeah. that's a great message. And yeah, I get a little bit intimidated by some technology too. I know a lot of it is for the good, but there's part of me too that's really hesitant. Like, I don't want to live in a virtual world. Like, I no. No, everybody thinks, yeah, everybody's like, oh, Stacey, she's this big telehealth proponent. And I'm like, no, 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 Stacey's a big option proponent, okay? Right. Stacy wants patients to have as many options as we can. I had shingles earlier in the year. It was, a, it was a terrible pain. You better believe as a cancer survivor, stage four, I was running into a face-to-face appointment. I was not doing that telehealth. They offered me telehealth. I said, no way. I am coming in. <laughs> I, I you know, because this might be, what if this is a recurrence? So fortunately, you know, my doctor looked, saw the rash, knew immediately it was shingles. Thank goodness. I should have known that, but I didn't know that. But no, I mean, technology is about increasing options and making what we have already better, mm-hmm. not a replacement for anything mm-hmm. at all. Never. Well, Stacey, if people want to support you and follow you and work with you, connect with you, or just be inspired by you, where do you recommend that they go to find you? Well, 
Thank you for asking, Joy. You know, my biggest and best platform is Twitter. I love Twitter, you know, because I, I just, I love connecting with people. And, and my sorority sisters all call me the glue. <laughs> I keep everybody together. I love that. But, you know, I'm out on Twitter at Stacy underscore Hurt, S-T-A-C-Y-H-U-R-T, Hurt. But please, yeah, feel free to contact me through my website, stacyhurt.net, and any other way, LinkedIn, Facebook, or Instagram. I am all out there and willing and ready to talk to anybody. So good. And yeah, this has been great today, Joy. I, I really appreciate you having me on. I hope it's been worthwhile for your audience. 100%. I'm like, I'm so happy to have you and hear your voice and amplify you and know, like, I want more people to know what you do so that you can inspire more people to do the same because it's very, very important work. And I think that I am grateful to know you. I am grateful to know you too. And I want to jump back on another clubhouse with you <laughs> and chew the fat a little bit and, and get some dialogue going. And um, no, but I appreciate this opportunity and onward and upward in 2022, man. I, Stacey is not stopping. She's only picking up more steam in 2022. And, and we're going to keep talking and keep changing the world for the better. And I appreciate um, doing that with you. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. This episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Inc. CMS's merit-based incentive payment system or MIPS is super complex. And if clinicians ignore the program or perform poorly in it, it can result in a hit to their revenue and reputation. Chirpy Bird is proud to say that more than 95% of its clients are exceptional performers in MIPS, meaning they've maximized the score that directly translates into their Medicare reimbursement rate. Chirpy Bird offers their audit-proof services to practices of all sizes through an affordable monthly subscription that includes unlimited access to a regulatory expert who guides them in knowing what data to track, how to create workflows that make capturing that data easier, and ensures that they submit it all to CMS on time and performing at its best. Contact Chirpy Bird today or learn more at chirpybirdinc.com. That's chirpybirdinc.com.